Well, we're still in Philippians. Uh, we are still in the second chapter of Philippians, and we are moving our way. Uh, what was really a difficult passage last week. If you understood last week, that's great. That means I didn't mess up too bad, or maybe you did some pre-studying, which really helped you during that time. But last week, we looked at this hymn of Christ in verses 9 through 11. And 9 through 11 really begins to set up what we're going to look at today. Today we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And it starts with one of these words that, that lets us know that Paul is relating to something else. He starts with the word, therefore, your translation, translation might say, and so then, or, or hey, buddy, look back if you have a really abbreviated translation. And so what he's doing is he's, he's saying, look back at those things that I've said before, because on the basis of that, on the basis of what I told you so far, that's how you understand this next passage. Now, as we look at this passage, I'm going to warn you that it seems to be somewhat of a paradox. It seems to be that, that one half of it says something, verse 12 communicates one thing, and verse 13 seems to, key in on that, seems to communicate the very opposite. It seems to be a paradox. Hopefully, I will communicate this clearly enough that we get to the end and you have this great, aha, I know what he's talking about now. Nobody, okay. Anyway, so that's what we're going to try and strive for. That's what we're going to try and do. Okay? Very good. Let me read for us, uh, starting in verse 12 and, and wrapping it up succinctly in the next verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his pleasure, for his good pleasure. Now you'll remember that we talked about everything in 127 through 217. What does it hinge on? Be worthy of the gospel. In 127, Paul writes to them, he says, be worthy of the gospel. Man, everything after that is just working out what it is to be worthy of the gospel. And so he told them, he said, be worthy of the gospel. In humility, consider others more significant than yourselves, right? He said, don't, don't seek to advance things through selfish ambition and conceit. Just don't do that. Don't let it be a part of your life. Absolutely not. He says, be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord. And then he returns to it again. He says, be in the same mind, think the same things, advance the same cause. We're all here because we want to advance the gospel. We want to make the gospel more potent, more powerful in our lives, and we want to make the gospel more potent, more powerful in the lives of those we come in contact with. Amen? Amen. And so he writes to them this, and then in 9 through 11, he hits them with a bombshell. 9 through 11 of chapter 2, he writes to them and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And they're floored. They're absolutely floored. The mind of Christ is the par excellence example of what they head towards. And what he tells them is, it's yours. And then he goes on to describe Christ and he says, who dwelled in the very form of God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He said, he said Jesus existed in the form of God, but he didn't see equality with God something to take advantage of, something to use for his own advantage. And so not doing that, he humbled himself. Taking the very form of a servant, a slave, he humbled himself. Being found in the likeness of man, Jesus was obedient 
to the point of death. And then he caveats that. He says, man, it was so gruesome. It was the point of death on a cross. This is the height of Jesus' obedience and his humility. And the Philippians are reading this, and they're just, they're just floored. Man, that's a heavy word to receive. He humbled himself to the point of death. But God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what purpose? So that God might receive glory. Jesus did all that so that we could be saved, yes. But so that God could receive glory. And man, they read that. That's the example that he sets before them. And they are absolutely floored. They're absolutely blown away. Now, when he writes to them, he says, he says, therefore, and so that's the basis of everything we've covered, and I've given you the cliff notes of so far this morning. And he says, therefore, my beloved. Now, it's important that we, as we look, that we don't skip over the way that Paul refers to the Philippians. If you read Galatians, Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, you foolish Galatians. But when he writes to the Philippians, he says, beloved, man. The way that he writes to them is instructive because of their behavior so far. Because of their identification with Christ, their identification in the cross. So he addresses them as beloved. It's not a letter where he's seeking to just you know, rail on them. And here in verse 12, he's echoing again what he wrote in the first chapter in verse 8. When he says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you. In the affection, with all affection, of Christ Jesus. Man, Paul loved the Philippians. They had this bond together. They had gone through life together. They had ministered to him. He had ministered to them. You remember in Acts 16, if you want to go back and read it, about Paul's founding of the Philippian church and how he suffered early on in the genesis and the birth of this church. And he writes to them and he says, Beloved, he says, as you have always obeyed. Now, what he's doing here is keying in on the obedience of Christ. In 2.8, we read about Christ, that being found in human form, he humbled himself in becoming obedient. And how far did Christ's obedience go? To death. To death on a cross. So when Paul writes to them, and he says... As you have been obedient, as you have always obeyed, man, they're absolutely floored that he would use the same concept of their behavior and tie those things together to the obedience of Christ. It's just stunning. Have you ever had somebody pay you a compliment and they're like, you remind me a lot Maybe if you're a woman and you're very giving, they say, you remind me a lot of, of Mother Teresa. And you're like, wow. In some ways, you don't feel quite worthy of it because you know that you know, books have been written, people made pilgrimages to see her, and somehow, if, if she's in heaven, she's in like the elite members club. She's got the, the one pass card that gets her into the first class lounge, and you're like, I'm never going in there. But they compared me with her, so maybe I'll get to walk by like, what up, Mother T? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. Or if you're a man and somebody says, man, your heart is so humble. You remind me a lot of the dear Reverend Billy Graham. And you're like, oh, oh, 
I'm so glad you saw that in me. Nobody has seen that in me, and you're so right. I write Billy like once a week, yo, Bill. When Franklin messes up, I can step in. But really, when people compliment us and they give us compliments like that, you're like, dude, you do not know me. You don't know what my thought life is like. You don't know what I'm like when you're not talking to me. So when the Philippians have this connection made to Jesus, on the one hand, they're like, yes! On the other hand, they're like, oh no. Epaphroditus, what have you told Paul about us? He's going to be so upset. So he writes to them and he says, man, as you have always obeyed, as your pattern of life has been one of obedience. And obedience here ties together the twin thoughts of hearing and doing. So it's not just that that they've heard this word. It's not just that they know all the answers for what it is to be a Christian. But they've heard it. They've internalized it. And man, it has made a real difference in their lives. You see, you and I can get together Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday night after Wednesday night. And when we start equipping you in the fall, man, you can even come to that. You can even read your Bible every morning. You can listen to Billy Graham on the radio, or maybe you're an Alistair Begg fan. You like the Scottish brogue, and you listen to him. But if it doesn't make any difference in your life, if the only way people can tell you're a Christian is by looking at your Facebook page and they check your religious preferences, then something is radically wrong. If the only way people know you're a Christian is through social media or what you say, but they can't recognize it in what you do, then what Jesus said about recognizing them and knowing them by their fruit is not true of you. So in some ways, they're floored that he would say, obey, and they tie that back to Jesus, but in other ways, it causes them to evaluate where they actually are. As you have always obeyed, continue to obey. And moving from presence, he starts talking about what it is when he's absent from there. He says, but much more in my absence... Much more in my absence. And he calls back this word, obey. You see, he's talking about that they need to obey, not just when he's there, and so he's making a reference to when he was there, or he's making a reference to when he is there again, but their lives consistently live out the message of radical obedience, of radical following, of missional living to their Lord and King, Jesus, on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis. Obey. Because, friends, obedience is the mark of a Christian. It's not that I know the right vocabulary. It's not that I made the right decision. It's not that I attend the right church. But Christianity, at its very basis, is marked by our obedience to our Lord and King, Jesus Christ, who has been given the name above all names. Now, I remember when I played soccer in high school, there was one, one year in particular that, no thanks uh, to me, and I, I don't deserve any of the credit, really I don't, but we went to the state playoffs. Now, over Christmas break, our coach had, had arranged some practices. And these practices, he told us, would enable us, you know, every coach is, just thinks a whole lot of their team, we're going to win state, we're going to go out there, we're going to blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, dude, we're going to lose, we're not going to do well, and uh, I don't play anyway, and so it's no sweat off my back. But if we do win, that's cool, I get a ring. And so he had organized these practices. Now, not all of these practices would he attend. And the first such of these practices, brother didn't show up. And it is raining, and it is cold, and we're out there, and we are running. 
I mean, Forrest Gump enjoyed running, diminished capacity, I don't enjoy running. I don't necessarily link running with diminished capacity, but I don't run. I don't enjoy it a whole lot. We are out there, and we are running incessantly in the rain. My cleats are wet. My socks are wet. I want to go home. All I want to do is open a present, right? That's the situation. That's the setting. Do you understand where I'm at in this? You wouldn't want to run either. Trust me. And so we're out there, and, you know, the team captain comes out and says, all right, guys, talk to coach. What he wants us to do is run for 40 minutes, and then he wants us to really get started with practice. We're going to do some wind sprints. We're going to do some drills. i got some cones over there. I'm thinking, what? Are you kidding me? And so we start off, and you've got a light, you know, a little light stretching. Oh, I like it. Oh, I'm going to run for 40 minutes and do wind sprints. About 10 minutes into the run, people start thinking, coach is not here. I'm not running anymore. And so your run's kind of a jog, then it turns to a walk, then it turns to kind of a sitting still and picking flowers. And somehow I've, I've digressed to the point where I'm a preschooler playing in the outfield in baseball. Look, look, I got a flower. But what we didn't know is that our captain was reporting everything to our coach. Man, he took down a list of names, the people that finished and the people that didn't. And I really wish I had run the full 40 minutes and done those wind sprints. Because running two to three times that length was not fun. You see, Paul writes to them and he says, I don't want your obedience to be on on the basis of whether or not I'm there. Just as you and I, our obedience and our allegiance to Christ shouldn't hinge on whether or not we're surrounded by other Christians. Our obedience to Christ and our thought life and what we say and what we do depends on our submission to him. Not the presence of somebody else. Certainly the presence of someone else in our lives helps us to walk the straight and narrow, as it's called. But our obedience isn't dependent upon somebody else. It's dependent upon us and our full allegiance to Christ. So he writes to them and he says that they should obey. But you know, but you think about people that don't obey. You've seen them, I've seen them. People that, that profess faith in Christ, man, they don't. They're not obeying. They don't seem to be hurt by not following. They don't seem to be particularly bothered by the fact that you know, they don't attend church or they, they have no fruit in their lives. We see the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13 had this group in mind when he talked about the devastating effect of sin. And he referred to them to say this type of thing to one another. He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, sin creeps its way into our lives. And it's disguised as something good, or something pleasurable, or something, you know, harmless. And it begins to take root. And then it begins to fester. It begins to grow foul. And then our hearts become to be hardened by this. To the point where we say, I just really don't, I don't feel like it today. It's much harder to do this than it is to not do this. We all have those areas in our life where sin creeps in. But to be a Christian is to steadily put to death those areas where sin makes its way in. In some ways, we go around our life and we're weatherproofing for energy efficiency. We're weatherproofing so that we might insulate ourselves against sin. 
And so we set up precautions. We steadily vet ourselves. We live life on life. So as men, we get together and say, you know, have you lusted this week? Have you looked at a woman in such a way as to lust after her this week? And we ask each other tough questions. Husbands and wives are talking, how have I offended you? How have I not lived up to what you wanted me to do? Man, we've got to get together and we've got to start working things out together. And that is how we find unity in the gospel. Paul wants them to obey, not just in his presence, but also in his absence. Now in verse 12, we're going to take verse 12 in three parts. Paul begins to, the second half of verse 12, we're going to continue to take in three parts. He begins to really get into the deep stuff. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, as we look at this, this is what it's not, okay? It is not this God helps those who help themselves mentality. You know, we're not just cast out all on our own. And this word work out gives us the understanding of working it out with great care and great effort. You see, we're not haphazardly walking through our Christian life just picking up the things that are easy. Like, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't kick puppies anymore, so that's a good thing for me. So I'm, I'm getting better at that as far as my salvation goes. Well, I, I don't kick old women anymore either, and so that's a really good thing. I kick old men occasionally, but only every, th- every other Thursday. So, you know, I'm working on that. That's probably something I can take out eventually, kicking old men. See, he's not talking about that. But what he also doesn't want them to do, and what we so often find ourselves in the habit of doing, is this is where we want to be. If the middle of the stage represents salvation, unfortunately what we've directed people is, this is where you want to be. You want to be saved. Have you made that decision? Can you point back to a time that you know that you know that you know? And this is what we ask people. Are you saved? So we're asking about a past action in their lives. Now we don't really care what happens to people, or this is the tendency, is to not care what happens to people as they walk and they occupy this space because they're saved. And that seems to be our mindset. We want to get people here, right? Have you, have you recognized that? Have you seen that? We want to get people here. We want to have people make decisions for Christ. But what comes next? Paul writes to them, he says, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, what Paul is calling to is radical obedience. He's not saying you need to save yourselves. As we've just read in verses 9 through 11, Jesus died on a cross. He died to afford us faith and belief and salvation in him. Now, Paul is throwing it back on the Philippians. He says, man, work out your salvation. Don't just get people to this point, but what you want to do is to have them continue to advance. Say that piano is, is the mind of Christ and the image of Christ in total perfection. Then in my life, I want to move towards that. I want to absolutely move in this direction. Because if I'm not moving in this direction, if I'm staying still over there, I'm not working out my salvation. I'm not growing in Christ's likeness. And the mind of Christ, which is ours, isn't having an impact. And instead, my life gives more reflection of Hebrews 3.13, that the deceitfulness of sin has crept in, and it's begun to harden my heart. You see, when he writes to them, and he says that you need to work it out, and the attitude that you have there should be one of fear and trembling, 
What he doesn't mean is that as you work it out, you need to be terrified that you fail. You need to be terrified that you fail. Paul is not employing some bit of shame-based education model. Where, you know, if a student turns in an assignment, you're like, this is horrible, this is absolutely trash. Is this the best that you can do? What Paul wants them to have instead is an attitude of reverence and an attitude of humble submission. That as we look at verses 9 through 11 in the description of Jesus, that Jesus humbled himself, that being found in human likeness, he became obedient to the point of death. Man, that as you and I hear that, as we reflect on the perfect image and example of Christ, we are absolutely floored. We are absolutely devastated and floored. Because there is only goodness in us because of Christ. There is only willing in us because of Him. We are floored when we look at our lives compared to the example of Christ. And now we begin to see the other side of the equation in verse 13. Paul writes in verse 13 and he says, For it is God who works in you. Now, this is why this seems to present some sort of, an or, of a paradox. You see, because just as much as it's not God helps those who help themselves, it is also not let go and let God. You see, these passages, these two verses seem to tie together in perfect harmony just as Jesus' humanity and divinity come together in perfect harmony. They seem to work, seem, I say, in contrast with one another, but really they work in concert with one another. You see, God works in us mightily and effectively. But how can we work out our salvation? You remember back to verses, verse 6 in chapter 1, when Paul wrote it then, and he said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the return of Christ. This is the message Paul's been meeting out the whole time. We also saw it right at the end of when we found out that they had belief and that from God. And they're going to suffer and that from God. You see, belief, faith, suffering, all of this comes from God. It is God who works in them. And friends, it is God who works in us. But you see, he does more than merely strengthen our willing and doing. In a very real sense, he gives us strength and he gives us a will. But we can harden our hearts against him if we let sin continue to creep in. Augustine, writing on this verse, stated it much better than I ever could. Augustine wrote and he said, Our deeds are our own because of the free will producing them. And they are also God's because, because of his grace causing our free will to produce them. You see, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we, as we reflect upon Christ. But God also works in us. He energizes us. He has given us faith. He has given us belief. And our free will and God's sovereignty work in concert with one another. The, psalm, the psalms this wrote in Psalm 127 and verse 1 and 2, talking about the futileness of trying to do something outside the empowerment, outside the, the, the willing arm and energizing of God. And he wrote in verses 1 and 2 of 127 that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, 
the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You see, if we're seeking to do this on our own, man, we're totally going to fail. If we're seeking to, to bring about change, if we're seeking to even drive at unity in our church, and we set programs up, and we set ways of doing this, but there's no humble submission on the part of each and every member, it's wholly going to fail. It's absolutely not going to work. It can only work if God moves in us and we humble ourselves to allow Him. We humble ourselves and be willing to be obedient to what He is calling us to. Last, we, we see the point where God, <clears throat> of God working in us. The last part of verse 13, He says, For it is God working in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The simple fact that, that Christ died, and for what purpose? Paul wrote to us and he said it was to bring God glory. And that God is working in us both to will and to work for what purpose? Man, to bring God glory. You see, when we begin to get to the point that we understand that Christianity is more about God than it is about us, then we don't squabble over things, then we don't complain about things, then we don't try and advance our own agendas. That even when we come in, as in the last two or three weeks, and we've roped off the back couple of rows of the sanctuary, that you look at that, and it's so far completely from your mind that you just say, man, I get to sit closer to people, I get to be more unified and have a physical manifestation of that, that you don't care that the seat that you've sat in for four decades is missing. Right? We're coming up on 50 years, and so this building's only been here since the 80s, right? 86, is that correct? And so that's a little crazy to think that you had that pew at home, but the, the point doesn't miss. I hope that pew wasn't at home. If it was, that is creepy. Why are you bringing your own pew to church? You see, this isn't our church. This is Christ's church. That's not your pew. That's his pew. That's not your seat. It's his seat. It's not my will. It's his will. He is working in me to do a good work and a good will for his glory. Not so that I can be famous, but so that he might be made more famous in Greenville. If we're really going to be about that, then God can do a great work in here. Or we can harden our hearts, we can become stubborn and transigent and say, this is my seat, if you sit here, I'm not coming back. That's just silly. Scoot over, scoot down. Find somewhere new to sit. Shake hands with somebody else. You shook hands with that person for the last 20 years. They're probably tired of shaking your hand. They actually told me that. They are tired of shaking your hand. It's called washing. You might want to do it occasionally. Seriously, though, God is working in us for a purpose. And that purpose is so that we might bring him glory. Friends, what is God calling you to? You see, as Brandon and Amy sat here in front of us today, and I remember when Valerie and I stood before our church, when our church commissioned us to go to Prague, we recognize that God's call on their lives is being answered in humble obedience. What is God calling you to? What point of service in the church is God calling you to? What area of your life is God calling you to?